Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is your host, Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show are three Manhattan Institute colleagues here to discuss the recent Supreme Court ruling on gun laws in New York State. We have Nicole Gelinas. She's a senior fellow at MI and a contributing editor of City Journal. Rafael Manguel, he's a senior fellow at MI, contributing editor of City Journal as well, and the head of research at the Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative, and Robert Verbruggen, a fellow at MI. So, Nicole, Ralph, Robert, thanks for joining very much. Uh, This case, um, titled New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. v. Bruin, uh, was obviously overshadowed by another big decision that the Supreme Court handed down this week or last week, Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not um, significant, not only for what it means legally, but also for its implications practically on the streets here in New York City and state. It was a six to three decision with the court striking down a New York state law that required applicants for concealed carry permits to prove a special need for self-protection. So Ralph, uh, as a lawyer, why don't you start by explaining the legal background here? Uh, what did this law mean in practice, and why did the court's majority declare it unconstitutional? So I think a little background is in order here. So in 2008, the Supreme Court held uh, for the first time in a case called Heller versus District, District of Columbia that in, the Second Amendment protected an individual right uh, to handgun ownership in the home. That that case was challenging a Washington, D.C. statute, which banned the possession of handguns, even for self-defense, in the home. Um, that was kind of the first domino to fall in the Second Amendment context. And in 2010, we saw a case out of Chicago called McDonald um, that held that the Second Amendment not only protected an individual right to keep and bear arms as enforceable against the federal government, which was the holding in Heller, but that the 14th Amendment had incorporated that Second Amendment right as enforceable against the states. And that's what opened the door for the challenge uh, that New York faced in its court. Now, in the years between McDonald and now, we saw lots of challenges to similar uh, restrictions on the right to carry, most notably uh, in the Seventh Circuit in the city of Chicago. There was a challenge uh, to a similar regime in the city of Chicago that was struck down by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, the Supreme Court decided not to take up the case back then, um, but after a circuit split developed where you had some federal court appellate courts holding that the Second Amendment did protect um, an individual right to carry, others holding uh, that it didn't. And then in between there, uh, some disagreement on the standards by which courts could evaluate the constitutionality of restrictions on gun carriage. Uh, The Supreme Court finally decided in this case to take the issue up. And what they were presented with was the following question. Does the Second Amendment extend a self-defense right that goes beyond the borders of one's home? And they answered that question in the affirmative. And so what New York was doing was they adopted what was what's largely uh, referred to as a May issue regime, whereby you have to apply for a permit to carry a gun, uh, in this case concealed. And then there is discretion on the part of, of the regulatory authority to decide whether or not to grant you that right. And in New York, part of the exercise of discretion was based on whether you could make an individual showing of special need um, as to why you needed a a firearm for self-defense in public. 
what the Supreme Court was asked to decide was whether or not that was constitutional, uh, and they held that it wasn't, and mostly on the grounds that the Second Amendment's text, as informed by the history of, of, of the period at which the Second Amendment was ratified, um, that the Second Amendment actually extends to an individual's right to both keep and bear arms, and that there is nothing in the text uh, of the Second Amendment or in the history that informs its interpretation uh, that justified the kind of regime that New York had. And so what we end up with now is a system in which New York is going to have to adopt what is called a shall issue regime, which means that um, outside of reasonable restrictions, anyone that qualifies um, for a, a handgun permit um, will have to be granted that permit if they go ahead and apply for it. Um, and, and and so that's that's the legal regime. I think there's going to be further litigation to kind of hammer out the details. Uh, I think you'll see cities like New York uh, do their best to restrict the scope of that right in every way possible, limiting carriage to certain types of places. Um, but but that's that I think is is a really major development in, in Second Amendment jurisprudence. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, Robert, um, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Post about the decision, New York City's density, you noted there, makes gunfire especially dangerous, and it seems to vitiate the self-defense justification for bearing arms, given the extensive nature of police coverage in the city. While it stands to reason that those concerned about violent crime might worry about what's coming, uh, you wrote that New York residents shouldn't panic yet. So what are some of the considerations, in your view, that counsel calm rather than concern here? Sure. I mean, my, my point there is, is twofold. I mean, first of all, um, this is something that's going to be very new for New York City, and New York City isn't quite like anywhere else in the country. Um, but this is a, a type of law that we have a whole lot of experience with in America. More than 40 states already went shall issue. Um, overwhelmingly, they did this voluntarily without being ordered to by courts. Um, and we have decades of research on the effects of these laws. And instead of having um, you know, clear, clear results that show that crime either increases or decreases thanks to these laws, we've basically had um, a decades-long spat in the academic literature over whether they do basically much of anything at all. It's been very unclear um, that these have much of an effect one way or the other. You can certainly cite, cite studies um, one way or the other. But if you look at the literature as a whole, it's very muddled, very unclear um, with a lot of disagreement um, between researchers who use different methods. So so to me, the, fir the first thing is that the type of law that the court is requiring now um, is something that we have experience with and that it hasn't led to, certainly hasn't led to, you know, anything worth panicking over. It's not, not clear that this has a bad effect. Um, but the other thing is uh, that because these other states did it voluntarily, I think they did it a lot more, um, with a lot more enthusiasm than New York is going to do it. Um, a lot of them have very minimal restrictions um, in fact, I, I recently moved um, and I, uh, you know, I got a new concealed, I'm getting a new concealed carry permit in Wisconsin where I moved to. Um, all that's required in Wisconsin is you take a, a class that's a few hours long and, and send in your application and that's the end of it. Um, but if you were to try to get a concealed carry permit somewhere like D.C., which was forced into a shawl issue regime um, by a court decision, you have to take, I think it's 16, 18 hours of, of training and pay much higher fees and, and your permit only lasts for a couple of years before you need to get it renewed, which requires even more training. Um, so, so basically, even if these laws are having bad effects elsewhere in the country, I think New York has a ton of leeway um, to, to minimize their effect there. So what they can do is require extensive training. They can charge fairly high fees. 
Um, and they can also um, just restrict the behavior of permit holders in various ways, including deeming more areas of the city sensitive where, where guns are banned. Um, they can encourage private businesses to not allow guns on the property and basically make it difficult for concealed carriers to go about their lives with their guns so that they are more likely to leave them at home. Um, so, so basically, I don't think that um, these laws have, there's, I don't think there's any evidence base to believe that these laws are extremely harmful. And also to the extent that they are harmful, I think New York has a lot of leeway going forward to, to temper their effects. Uh, uh, Nicole, you've been more critical of the decision, or at least the implications of the decision, writing also in the New York Post, that it's going to be harder to prosecute gun crime, just as the court's ruling pours a far larger number of guns into circulation. Assuming, uh, you know, assuming for the sake of argument that this decision does have a negative effect on public safety in New York City, it certainly comes at an inappropriate or difficult time for, for Mayor Eric Adams, whose subway safety plan remains so far mostly theoretical, uh, and whose um, tough rhetoric about curbing crime has has proved that that's something easier talked about than than actually done. Uh, so how, in your view, Nicole, should the mayor navigate this ruling? And what do you think its implications are for his tenure? Yeah, thank you, Brian. Glad to be on uh, again on the podcast. Yeah, I think there's two separate issues to think about in the court's decision. One, the constitutional debate about how far do individual gun rights go. Uh, I'll leave that to other people to think about. And the other is, will the proliferation of guns make us safer? And will it make New York City safer in particular? And if you look at the firearm death rate in New York State and New York City, it's very hard to figure out what is the problem that we are trying to be solving here. I mean, you can look at the uh, rate of firearm deaths across the country, the states uniformly at the top with only a couple exceptions, Mississippi, Louisiana, Wyoming, Missouri, Alabama, all have homicide death rates that are five and six times the level in New York State and New York City. Even states that are in the middle of the pack, you know, Florida, Wisconsin, still two and three times the level in, in New York State and New York City. So despite the increase in the murder rate that we've seen in the past two years, which is certainly uh, greatly concerning, New York in, in, in the state and the city level, still vastly safer than the rest of the country when it comes to firearm deaths. Uh, you know, five firearm deaths per 100,000. Very hard to see how we get much lower than that. And we did this without making it easy to get a gun. I mean, we went from 2,200 murders in 1990 to closer to 300 in 2017, 2018, it did that really without resorting to uh, the right of self-defense. We did that through in improving civil society, including through police reform. Uh, so how does Adams address this new problem that has been handed to him by the Supreme Court? Uh, it's not going to be easy. I hope that Robert is right and that we can do this with 
uh, targeted enforcement, other measures, including uh, designating certain places that are sensitive areas where you can't carry a firearm, the licensing uh, requirements and so forth. But it's it's hard to varnish the decision. The court has essentially said that we have to be a shall issue state and likely a shall issue locality. And so we will see what other places where uh, gun uh, proliferation has long existed. People lose their guns. They leave their guns in their cars. They have their guns stolen from them. They sell their guns or lend their guns illegally to people who are not supposed to have them. And this contributes to gun violence. So what are some of the things that uh, Adams can do? in the rest of the state's uh, legal infrastructure. Of course, go after people who are carrying illegal guns. The more guns in circulation, the more people will see carrying illegal guns. But this will also be difficult to do in the political environments. You already have the Bronx defenders and the Brooklyn defenders saying, if it's going to be legal for people to carry guns, you can't go prosecuting black and brown people for carrying guns because they've got a felony record, other reasons why they can't obtain gun permits. Now, I disagree with that reasoning. The law is the law. If you're carrying an illegal gun, you should be prosecuted. But practically and politically speaking, going to be very, very hard to prosecute illegal gun possession when there is more of that. And when we have normalized uh, carrying guns and it, it's not seen anymore as an antisocial or aberrant behavior. I, I wonder, um, Robert, uh, you, you follow the gun issue pretty closely. You, you noted that um, majority of states, in fact, have similar, legis- you know, is a similar ruling to, to what um, is, is now going to be legal in New York, that there's similar legal arrangement. Uh, do we see uh, that kind of uh, political uh, pattern emerging where, um, you know, minority um, perpetrators are, are presumed um, innocent, basically, or, or that it becomes harder to prosecute uh, them for gun crimes, um, in, you know, if, if it is the case that there's more uh, people carrying guns around legally? I mean, I don't think that's something that I've seen a, a whole lot of evidence for. One, one complaint I, I have heard um, just sort of here and there is that in states that have uh, more than 20 states at this point have actually gone what's called permitless carry, uh, which means that it's not even a shell issue regime where you need to issue a permit. You don't even need a permit to carry it. I have heard um, you know, some complaints from law enforcement saying that if you, know, you don't need a permit to carry a gun, it's harder for, to, uh, for cops to um, to sort of intervene and, and stop people who are carrying illegally because it blurs the lines a lot. Um, but, but in terms of if you have a, you know, a shell issue regime that says, you know, you, these are the requirements to own a gun um, or to, to carry a gun and you need to get this training and you need to pay this fee and you need to identify yourself and get a background check. Um, to, me, to me, at least, that, that seems very different from somebody who's just illegally carrying a gun um, without any authorization whatsoever and without going through the training. And, you know, and that goes double if they're actually legally barred from doing so because they have, you know, for example, a felony record or something like that. Um, so I, I'm not, not as concerned as Nicole is about that. But it's, and yeah, it's obviously something in New York's political environment, especially where you have um, you know, a much bigger presence for the sort of you know, racial equity left. Um, making these types of arguments, it's something that they're going to have to navigate. Um, there is a, a new bill um, that uh, is going to be voted on in Thursday in the New York uh, State Legislature, um, requiring people applying for concealed weapons permits to 
go through uh, in-person training um, and also allow officials to access access their their mental health records uh, via a background check, um, at least according to what people are saying about this bill. And it's also going to prohibit the possession of guns in government buildings, courthouses, hospitals, and and schools. Um, you know, I, I wonder, Nicole, uh, if you think this will basically address some of the concerns um, that that you've suggested, and uh, whether you know whether that's going to um, prove constitutional. Yeah, I think it is certainly better to have stringent licensing requirements, education requirements, and other things that they can think about doing is making sure that there is a strong regulatory framework for gun gun dealers, gun sellers, making sure we're not adding uh, guns to the straw buyer market, and keeping things like New York City uh, under its own regime, under the state law, had rules that said, for example, you have to prove that you have a, pl- a safe place to store your gun in your house. So it's more difficult to, to steal it. And they would come and visit your house and look at your lockbox. And that's something that I would hope would pass constitutional muster that, that a, a, the city should be requiring these gun owners to demonstrate responsibility in securing the firearm. And also things like a succession plan for your gun. If you unfortunately pass away, what happens to your gun? That's something that New York City required. Is that something that will pass uh, constitutional muster? So certainly, the stronger the requirements are, the better. Uh, and it will, we'll see uh, how, uh, and this is certainly going to end up in court. Uh, it, another thing that will end up in court again is what is a sensitive place? Uh, we have the risk that we create a patchwork of sensitive places. And then you have people say, I forgot my gun when I was taking the subway. Well, okay, but under the logic of going after people carrying illegal weapons, that is at that time an illegal weapon. So they should also be prosecuted for carrying an illegal weapon. Again, very difficult to uh, apply these uh, prosecution uh, issues in practice. Um, Ralph, uh, I, I wonder if you could speak a bit uh, about the, uh, you know, the, the decision itself, the constitutional reasoning in it. Reasoning in it. So, writing in the SCOTUS blog, the uh, the constitutional uh, scholar Randy Barnett evaluated Justice Clarence Thomas's opinion as follows. He writes, "At the level of policy, it is quite modest. At the level of constitutional method, it is potentially major." Setting aside the practical implications of the decision, which we've been talking about for a moment, what, in in your your view, as a matter of jurisprudence, set Thomas's uh, interpretive method apart? So, well, one thing um, that I think is a, a really, really major development is that the opinion rejects a means and test. Um, for constitutionality. So there are many constitutional rights where, as a plaintiff, uh, arguing that some government action is unconstitutional, the burden falls on you to establish that the constitutional right, one, exists, and two, that it's been burdened in a way um, uh, that, that triggers constitutional review. But in some cases, the government can then rebut that presumption by showing that the 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 burden is justified 
in cer- or that it's a, that the burden exists in service to a compelling government interest, and that the the regulation in question is narrowly tailored to that interest. That's what we call uh, uh, heightened scrutiny, strict scrutiny. Some courts, uh, for different contexts, will adopt intermediate scrutiny, which you know uh, is a slightly different formulation. Is there um, uh, uh, a legitimate government interest that's 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 being served by this, and then of course there's rational basis review. What what this does is it rejects any kinds of means and uh, tests for constitutionality, and only asks whether the regulation, um, once it's established that that, that the Second Amendment uh, right is is burdened, the the question then becomes whether the regulation has a historical analog. Um, that would allow the court to conclude that the restriction in question is in line with what would have been understood to be congruous with the existence of, uh, of the right at the time of ratification. Um, and that makes some of these potential future cases a little trickier. Um, you know, for example, uh, it's not at all clear that we have a significant um, body of, of uh, historical records showing uh, that, that we could use to justify, you know, uh, an extremely high fee, uh, you know, and certainly there's you know, other jurisprudence in other constitutional areas like poll taxes where, you know, uh, the Supreme Court has rejected um, uh, potentially pricing people out of exercising a constitutional right. Um, so th- I think that's certainly uh, probably the, the, the biggest uh, development in terms of the case law around the Second Amendment was that, you know, there were a lot of courts that just thought, well, you know, even if we show, even if it's shown that a Second Amendment right is burdened, the government can still come in and justify uh, that burden um, by showing, you know, uh, uh, the, by surviving this kind of means end uh, kind of test. The, the, this opinion takes that completely off the table, um, and so I think I think that's going to be really interesting to see, you know, what role that plays in future litigation, um, and and yeah, I, you know. There's, there's also uh, we have to sort of look at at these issues in the context of other areas of constitutional jurisprudence, right? So, things like uh, opening up your house to government inspections of your firearm storage place. It's not clear um, whether that would survive a challenge even under the Fourth Amendment, right? Uh, you know, there's a case called um, uh, Patel that came down out of California a few years back where um, the Supreme Court. Uh, ruled in favor of a facial challenge uh, to a, a Los Angeles um, uh, regulation requiring hotels to keep a log of guests and then making that log available to police on demand. Um, it, it's not, you know, it, it's not entirely clear that, uh, you know, something requiring uh, you to allow government agents into your home to examine um uh, you know, your your gun storage set up as a condition of being able to exercise a constitutional right would, would pass jurisprudence. So, um, you know, th- that I think is, is, is where Randy Barnett was really focusing on. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, there, there did seem to be in the concurrence of Amy Comey Barrett um, uh, some slight discomfort with such heavy reliance on historical analogs. I think in part because it's certainly possible that there might have existed a regulation or regulatory trend that was just incongruous with what um, the the text meant at the time of adoption, and so you know it, it perhaps makes sense uh, uh, to allow for that. Um, what the court also did, though, was it left a couple of really interesting questions unanswered. For example, uh, I mentioned earlier the case of McDonald, which 
held that the Second Amendment was not just enforceable against the federal government, but also against the states, that raises a really interesting question, which is whether the historical analysis should concentrate on the period of the Second Amendment's ratification or on the the period of the 14th Amendment's ratification. Um, Some scholars have argued that um, when you're talking about a, a state infringement on a constitutional right, that what really matters is how the right was understood at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification. Um, And so the court said that it didn't need to uh, settle that question in this case, but um, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, what happens with that, given that they recognize the existence of that scholarly debate and and sort of left the door open um, to answering it in in both directions. Sure. Um, A final question, maybe maybe for all three of you. Um, What do you think the effect this decision will have on the uh, policing approach uh, in New York City, um, you know, one of the ways gun guns were controlled in the city uh, during the Giuliani and Bloomberg years was through stop, question, and frisk, which the department uh, has has backed away from uh, as as an approach. Um, do do we see perhaps a reinvigoration of that idea, um, or or some other uh, approach that might get you know? get more guns off the street. So now, you know, I think told, that oh, ahead, um, it's, oh, sorry. I, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on policing in the city. And I say that because it doesn't seem to have had a huge impact on policing in the other jurisdictions that have either adopted shall issue regimes or have adopted permitless carry regimes. Part of the reason for that is that gun arrests tend to be kind of second order offenses. Uh, so, you know, the, the illegal gun is not uh, the, 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 the potential for someone carrying a gun is, is very rarely the sole basis for the interaction, right? Usually there's, for example, in New York City, 40 plus percent of, of gun arrests in 2020 started as traffic uh, enforcement actions. So you're getting pulled over for, you know, some kind of traffic violation. That's the basis for the interaction. And then, you know, let's say the driver turns out not to have a license. So, you know, you pull them out of the car, you pat them down, and then you discover the illegal weapon. Or it turns out they have drugs in the car and you make an arrest and then the search into to, to arrest uh, reveals the existence of, uh, or the presence of an illegal firearm. And so that's, that's I think, a much more common way for firearm uh, carriage, illegal firearm carriage uh, to be discovered. And so I think we'll, we'll, we'll continue to see that. Um, but, but I do uh, think that the bigger question here is going to be whether and to what degree those critical, particularly on the left, those critical of the Bruin decision and what it means for New York will come to terms with uh, the reality that they have played a role in our gun violence problem that is, in my opinion, far greater um, uh, insofar as they have supported not just defunding police, but um, you know, not investing in police enough to, for example, make up for the fact that we're losing detectives at a, an enormous rate and other officers at an enormous rate, and, uh, the, to make up for the fact that they have passed and enacted criminal justice reforms that have really lowered the transaction cost of crime commission and also raised the transaction cost of, of, of crime enforcement, things like bail reform, discovery reform, raise the age, less is more. Um, you know, to me, uh, you can have a far greater impact on gun violence outcomes by 
getting away from the depolicing and and and, and decarceration uh, approach that a lot of modern Democrats in cities like New York have taken. Um, and so, you know, one question, as I've written for City Journal, um, you know, that that I think really tests the seriousness of, of, of people on this issue is the degree to which they're going to be willing to question their priors in the criminal justice reform space, uh, particularly in light of what this decision means. Because you know, the reality is, is that crime, gun crime in particular, is very hyper concentrated in very small places and among very small social networks of people. And it's a lot easier to control criminals than it is to control millions and millions of firearms in circulation. So that, that I think, is going to be the major question for New York moving forward. Uh, Robert or, or Nicole, any any observations on that? Yeah, I think to the extent that stop, question, and frisk and other aspects of broken windows policing and stopping small crimes before they turn into uh, larger crimes was a deterrent to carrying an illegal gun on the street, as both Bill Bratton and Ray Kelly reiterated over the weekend. If you are concerned, you'll be stopped and questioned. Leave your gun at home. A dispute on the street corner doesn't escalate to the level of becoming a shootout. Uh, we we got uh, uh, illegal guns off the streets. More importantly, we made people feel comfortable going out not carrying their illegal gun uh, because they there was a, a virtuous cycle effect where as shootings decreased, people felt safer and did not feel that they had to carry their illegal gun for self-defense. As uh, many young black men have, have said over the past couple of years, that has turned around. They say that they are carrying these guns for self-defense. I think to the extent that more guns in circulation means it's there's even less friction in getting an illegal gun. Yes, we'll have to go back to doing more stop, question, and frisks to try to change that incentive again that you you don't want to be carrying because there is a penalty for carrying and going back to the days where that penalty was immediate and certain. So if you know you're carrying your illegal gun, you've got a two to four year prison sentence, uh, you're going to think, think twice about that. So yes, we're going to have to go back to doing that in more uh, stops for suspicious behavior, including carrying an illegal gun and a certain prison sentence for doing that. And it, you know that's a, a, a sound policy, but very difficult to do in this political environment. And we've seen some uh, uh, shooting cases uh, dropped because the, the uh, both sides in the shooting have claimed self-defense, even though they were each uh, carrying illegal weapons. So it will be interesting to see if how far the self-defense claim holds when the person was not supposed to be uh, carrying a weapon. Uh, so, you know, lots of uh, unknowns here and makes Eric Adams' job much more difficult and complicated to go back to your original question, Brian. I just wanted to add, add a couple of things. But you know, first of all, I mean, I think it's it's important going forward to draw the line between legal and illegal guns, um, especially if we're worried about um, you know the fact of more more and more legal guns uh, undermining enforcement. I think it's going to be very important to to keep that distinction in mind and and and, and use that that distinction aggressively. Um, another uh, 
aspect of this situation though is when you have more people legally carrying guns there's going to be more interactions between you know people legally carrying and um and law enforcement and i think that involves training on both sides you know i mean uh, I, i'm willing to bet that new york is going to require very extensive training um so part of that should definitely be how they interact with law enforcement you know inform them that you're carrying keep your hands hands visible etc and also i think the the police are going to need to uh get more used to interacting with armed civilians who are who are legally carrying um and are not you know breaking any laws you know one thing i just wanted to add to nicole's point because i think Yeah, well, I just wanted to add one thing to Nicole's point, because I think she's exactly right about the need to have, you know, certain and stiff penalties um, uh, in response to violations of, of of our gun laws, even after this decision. But, you know, what's not clear to me is that there exists an infrastructure um, and, uh, you know, a group of, of leaders who is willing to go down that route. And, you know, we have a very recent example of something just like this, uh, the a case involving a, an individual named Sharif Lucas, who uh, a, a year ago, according to the Daily News, was uh, arrested and uh, charged with illegally carrying a firearm in federal court here in New York and was given a sentence of probation. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, a video made the rounds and went viral, uh, allegedly showing him uh, walking out of his house and uh, discharging a firearm down both sides of his street uh, on camera in broad daylight. So, you know, I, I just may, I use this example to reiterate that far more important to the future of New York under this new regime is going to be the willingness of our criminal justice actors, our judges, our prosecutors, our lawmakers to create the conditions in which um, uh, individuals who have proven themselves to be dangerous and and risky, um, uh, you know, to, to to actually have the wherewithal to take them off the street for significant periods of time. Well, thanks to all three of you. Um, don't forget to check out Nicole Gelinas, Ralph Manguel, and Robert Bruggen's work on the City Journal website. Uh, we'll link to their author pages in the description. I should note that uh, Ralph has a very, very uh, exciting new book coming out uh, in July called Criminal Injustice. Uh, we'll have a link to that as well. Um, and we'll have him back on the podcast when the book is out to talk about that in more detail. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast today, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. So to the three of you, thanks very much and uh, really appreciate having you on. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.